The next speaker is Jean M., who's going to discuss slipping it over your head. <laughs> I'm having difficulty deciphering Elmer's writing. So if you'll all sit down, Jean will come tell you about slipping it over your head. Well, it's, it's fun, fun, fun to be asked to participate in IDAA. You know, today I'm aware of so much more than I used to be aware of. Of course, I'm not certain of a lot I'm aware of. I'm aware, for instance, that I'm in Vancouver, and I'm not sure where that is. I'm aware that it's 2005, and I sure as hell don't know when that is. <laughs> uh, I was asked to be a stand-in for a guy named Jolt, and I don't know who the hell Jolt is. <laughs> There's one thing today that I... I'm aware of, and I'm certain of, and I'm sure of, and that's that my name is Dr. Gene, and I'm an alcoholic. And like Conway and Ann said, that is so difficult to understand. No matter how much I used to study and read and think and meditate about alcohol and various sundry drugs, I did not understand what it meant to have alcoholism. And I, and I sort of believe today that the only people who really do understand what alcoholism is all about and what it means and what it is are people like we find in rooms like this, people like you and I, people that have had the disease, and then suffered the agony of recovery in this very wonderful and peculiar fashion through the majesty and power of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm convinced that alcoholism is a disease, and isn't it strange that you have to have it before you understand it? There are not many diseases like that. I'm a multifaceted physician, I guess you'd say. I'm a board-certified pathologist. Um, I've also had three years training in medicine, and I had a year of surgery. Uh, I've done primary medicine for a long while, and I still didn't understand alcoholism until after I'd recovered. And I only know of one other condition like that. I did general practice down in Melbourne, Florida for a good long while. And in Melbourne, in those days, the men in general practice did everything. And we did a lot of obstetrics. I delivered lots of babies. And we, we didn't have any anesthesiologists, so we were early believers in natural childbirth. And we used to talk and... To, Help these young ladies through this apparently very difficult ordeal. I, I, I had a hard time understanding that, you know. It seems like all these women make a great issue of delivering a child. They scream and they holler and they raise hell and, and it's difficult for me to understand how anything conceived with such sacrifice on the male part and such apparent pleasure by the female can end in such absolute agony. I know one night I was delivering a little 21-year-old lady of her first child, and I'd been sober a day or two, and I was nervous, and, and she was nervous, and her husband had been overseas for 10 months, and he was nervous, and, oh, and she just had a terrible time. She yelled, she screamed, and she just carried on, but finally we, we managed to produce a beautiful young male infant.
I went back to the doctor's lounge where I conveniently kept a little jug and I was having a little toddy and talking to a friend of mine. And I, I was just reflecting about this, this thing the women go through during delivery. And the maid was cleaning up. And she, I guess I had enough of that. She finally said, well, doctor, it do hurt. I said, well, what do it feel like? She said, take your lip between your thumb and your forefingers. And I, I did. She said, now slip it forward. And I did. She said, now pull it over your head. <laughs> and you know, Now, that, that's what my alcoholism is like. It, it was as if I had an unwanted pregnancy. And for many, many, many years, I tried my best to hide it and to protect myself from the knowledge that I had this terrible, terrible thing happening to me. But finally, it became apparent to everyone, and eventually I went into labor. And it was a god-awful experience. But I was finally delivered from the disease of alcoholism. And you know, in that sense, it was also like obstetrics. Because at that moment in my life, I experienced the miracle of new birth. I hear people talking about being spiritually bankrupt. But you see, I was spiritually dead. I did indeed die of alcoholism. The time alcoholism had taken its toll upon me, I... I had no vestige of humanism left. I was totally self-centered, self-oriented, and full of self, and I hated what I was full of. And I was creatureless. And I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, and very gently and very courageously, I was reborn. I don't believe people can understand this that haven't experienced it. I really don't. Alcoholism is a peculiar disease. The state of mind, the state of being that the alcoholic lives constantly in is, is uncanny and unreal. For many, many years I lived in a constant state of impending doom. Today on occasion I, I, I experience a state of impending goodness. And tonight I have such a feeling. I, I did general practice up in the mountains up in North Carolina for a while. I had an old fellow named John Jenkins, God rest his soul. He was an old mountain man. And John was stubborn and convicted and had had several forces in assertiveness. And he came to my office one day and he said, Doctor, I want you to pull my tooth. I said, tell John, I can't pull a tooth. I'm not a dentist. He said, you're a doctor, ain't you? I said, yeah. He said, well, pull my tooth. I, I said, John, I, can't, I don't even know how to put that thing to sleep. You couldn't stand the pain. He said, oh, come on, doctor. This pain don't bother me none. So a couple of times in my life, I had pain of such intensity and such severeness that since then, nothing's ever bothered me. So I thought you crazy old son, didn't you? Know, I, I got out my pliers, and I looked at that little tooth, and I said, John, I'm going to have to cut the gun. He said, that's okay. So I took me out my pocket knife, and I wiped it off my britches, and I kind of incised the gum a little bit. And old John squashed the blood around his mouth, and he spit it out. Oh, jeez. I got my pliers, and I pulled that, the roots broke off. And I got me a nail and I prized out those roots. And I broke out in a sweat. And John just spit out the blood. I said, damn, man, didn't that hurt? He said, no. I said, well, John, tell me about the times in life that you've had pain that's immunized you against suffering. He said, well, Doc is like this. Several years ago, a bunch of us was out hunting. We wouldn't have no luck. We'd hunted all day long and hadn't seen nothing. And long about four o'clock, I came across an old, old log there, and 
I, I leaned my, my, my gun up against the tree, and I kind of hunkered down. I was going to relieve myself. He said, but you know, unbeknownst to me, there was a bear trap chained to that log. I said, I guess I must have wiggled too big, because that bear trap went off and grabbed me. I thought, great balls of fire. And I could see the pulse pounding John's neck, you know, and he was reliving this moment of agony. And I said, John, that was awful. It's worse. I said, well, John, when was the next time you had pain like that? He said, when I got to the end of that chain. <laughs> and, and you know, that, that that's the way my alcoholism was. Something had a hold of me. Something had a... I, I was suffering unimaginable pain continuously. And I was running through the present, full well knowing that the very next step, I'd get to the end of that chain, and I couldn't stop. And this went on for years and years and years of my life. And I was denied a memory of pleasure in drinking or taking pills. And I took lots of medication. I think I invented generic medication. Uh, I didn't care about trade names. I didn't care about them. If a little bottle of pills or a big bottle of liquid was labeled warning maybe have it for me, that was my drug of choice. <laughs> I took every medication that affected the brain that was made prior to 1972. I drank everything that I, that had alcohol in it. I drank some things that I hoped had alcohol in them. <laughs> One time I chewed a bar of shaving soap, hoping it was, uh, the vehicle was a solid long chain alcohol. <laughs> My favorite drunk, uh, drink was brute and coke. And Conway said he hadn't tried any Miles Nervine out west, and I was raised in Oklahoma. That used to bother me. I used to be ashamed that I came from Oklahoma. It don't bother me anymore. I know lots of smart folks that come from Oklahoma. The smarter they are, the sooner they come from Oklahoma. But anyway. <laughs> Anyhow, there I was, see. <laughs> Out in Oklahoma, and the Indians got a favorite drink, and they call it Green Lizard. Green Lizard Circus Style is Miles Nervine and Lucky Tiger Harold. And that stays down. You don't, but it does. The last time I drank, I got drunk on Vitalis Harold. And I didn't understand that. And I was confused, and I was perplexed. And I was full of fear, and I was full of anger, and I was, I was so afraid. And I guess I do what all physicians do when they get a problem like this concerning themselves. They go see psychiatrists. And I did that. I saw 23 psychiatrists. They're a breed apart. You know, I'm not going to tell any ethnic jokes now, but a bit of alcohol. If alcoholism is inherited, and psychiatry is a breed of people, they're, they're a genetic catastrophe. <laughs> but I, I, no, I shouldn't, you know, a lot of my... <laughs> I got a lot of real, real, real fine friends at psychiatrists, and every one of them, even these 23 men that I went to, are, are very fine folks. They're, they're cut out of a very fine pattern. They just sewed up wrong. <laughs> but I love them dearly. But anyway, I made my way through the byways and highways of American psychiatry to Miami to Rochester and Boston, and in 19, 
69, I, I, I was uh, finally got my boards in pathology, and I went to Ardmore, Oklahoma, to practice pathology. Now, I went to Ardmore because that's the only place I could find to practice in the United States. And Ardmore welcomed me with open arms because I was the only pathologist they could find. <clears throat> and this is important to me because in 1970 in Ardmore, one night I was in my cups, and an OBGYN man that I think probably has a drinking problem, and I was concerned about him, was in his cups, and he asked me how many children I had, and I said I had one little girl, and he wanted to know if I didn't, wouldn't like to adopt a child, and I said, sure. So on November the 5th, 1970, he called me at about 1.45 in the morning and said, please come to the hospital, you just adopted a little baby boy. Now, I was in Ardmore because I had severe alcoholism. And I was at that baby's bedside because I had severe alcoholism. So on November the 5th, when this child was an hour and a half old, we went to the hospital and brought him home. And they'd washed him up and shined him up, and we looked at him and said, My God, he looks just like a, like a sparking little bullet. So that fellow's name is Bullet. You see, and he's mine. He is mine, because I have alcoholism. That was in 1970. In 1971, my wife decided she had a drinking problem, so she went to her first psychiatrist. Now, she was very shortly to share this man with him, so I claim half of him. This gives me a grand total of 23, 23 and a half <laughs> And one day, to kind of straighten out his thinking, she took me to his office. She wanted to show her his, show him her alcohol problem. And, <laughs> and you know, I can remember this. And it was in that man's office in September 1971 when I did something that, that still amazes me. I never heard of Alcoholics Anonymous. I certainly never heard of the spiritual discipline that we suggest as a program for recovery. But in that man's office in September 1971, I took the first step toward recovery. He said, Doctor, what's wrong with you? And I said, I'm an alcoholic. My life's in shambles. And I didn't know what that meant. I had no idea in the world what it meant. But I'm not sure that a suffering alcoholic at that stage in his disease process can have any concept about what it means to be an alcoholic. But I admitted it. I said, what can I do? And we talked for a while about my Blue Cross insurance policy. And he said, well... The, be the best thing for you would be Alcoholics Anonymous, but I want you to come to my TA classes. So, uh, and, I, and I've got to admit, TA works just fine. It, it worked well as long as I went. His classes were, were on Tuesday, and I attended faithfully for a week, and I did just beautifully. <laughs> uh, I remember going back to Ardmore with my wife that day, and full well knowing that now we, we've got this problem solved, you got alcoholism, so you got to watch how you drink. And the next day, I went out and bought me a new Buick and two-fifths of whiskey and went out and watched how I drank and ended up in the emergency room of the hospital that I was a pathologist in, unconscious. Woke up on the second floor of that little hospital in that famous little Benin hospital gown. My wife always took my clothes. We had hospitalized me on 14 occasions in the past in psychiatric units and for a total of 28 months of inpatient care, which included such glorious things as shock treatment and all that sort of business. And I knew what had happened. And I woke up and I was so afraid. So I got up and went down through the lobby into my laboratory and found me one of my little plastic bags and filled it up full of rubbing alcohol, and I took it back up to my room and I poured it into a glass, and I can remember looking at that and thinking, oh, I know I shouldn't, but if I don't, I'll die. 
Shadrach didn't woke up in ICU. They insisted I go away and they suggested that I may as well do something about my drinking. So I went to a treatment center in Texas, Dallas, Texas, where I was introduced to the concept of Alcoholics Anonymous. The center was run by two very fine gentlemen in AA. We talked a lot about AA and about the disease alcoholism, but they didn't know something that I've since become convinced of. That for an alcoholic of my health and my severity, the only possible chance for recovery is through the empirical strength of the spiritual discipline that we call the 12 steps. So on the 27th day of this 28th pro, uh, 28 day program, we had three four hour sessions on the recovery program called the 12 steps. And it was toward the end of this treatment experience that I was exposed to the therapeutic tool that I believe guarantees recovery from this most insidious of all illnesses. I'd have made it then. I'd been sober 28 days. I got out at noon. They gave me back my $5, and I went downstairs, and my wife was 30 minutes late. And there was a whiskey store across the street, and I went across and got me a bottle of vodka and drank it before she got there. Once again, she'd failed me, don't you know? So I went back to Ardmore after a therapeutic experience. My wife couldn't stand it, so we thought for a while and decided since I was only 44, I should go home to Mama. So I went home to Mama. Moved to Oklahoma City with my sainted mother. Mother was glad to see me. She was going to love me well. About four or five days later, she called my wife and said, Come and get him. You must do something with him. I can't stand it. Now, my wife had been to Al-Anon. And she already had her black belt. (laughs) And she came up to Oklahoma City and got me and took me out to a place called the Reno Club. And she detached with hate. And I can remember waking up in the Reno Club. My clothes were gone again. I was laying on the cot in the basement next to an old cold furnace. And it was it was cold in the wintertime in Oklahoma. And there were number 10 cans on the legs of this little cot that I was laying in to keep the vermin off, off the floor, they later told me. And I, did, I didn't know where I was. So I wrapped the blanket around me. I went upstairs. And I looked around. And you know, this place was filled with little skid robot, little winos, little shaking, shivering, skinny, destitute little men with no ambition, no goal in life, and no place to go. And I was a doctor of medicine, and I was incensed. And I called my mama, and she came and got me. Well, four or five days later, my mama called my wife and said, you got to come get him and do something with him. So so she did, you know, she been she been to another one of those damn meetings. And she took me back to the Reno Club. And she detached with hate. And you know I woke up on that same cot in that same basement, and I wrapped that same blanket around me and I went upstairs and I looked around and this place was filled with winos. They're the strangest little creatures you have ever seen. Men not going any place in life. And I was incensed because I was a board certified pathologist, I was board eligible in medicine, I was a doctor of medicine, and I did not belong there. So I went upstairs to one of the palatial forty bedrooms and there was a little guy there, he was shaking and shivering and shaving. And I was admiring how he did that without cutting his throat. And he had a little bottle of aqua velva sitting there on his bedside, you know. 
And I said, is it off of all the years? And he said, yeah. And I said, can I borrow some? And he said, yeah, and I drank it. <laughs> and he ran away. <laughs> and while he was gone, I, I went through the little room, and there was some some Akron, and there was some Morocco oil, and a couple of nice bottles of Vitalis and Listerine that I never touched. And pretty soon he came back to the powers of the bee, and they threw me out of the mission house on Skid Row in Oklahoma City. They said that I was a bad influence on these men that were trying to spread me. But I can remember confusion and fear, horrible, horrible feeling of impending doom. And for some reason, I've been going to Alcoholics Anonymous off and on, trying to, trying to be a part, trying to, trying to do what I, what I could do and it hadn't been working. But for some reason, in that mysterious way that things have of happening to us, I was sent to a rehabilitation center in Blairstown, New Jersey. And it was on June the 5th, 1972, that some men in Alcoholics Anonymous came out to my house, my mother's house, and my little room in my mama's house. And I prepared to go, but they were so solicitous, so they unpacked my bags and they took out all the things I didn't need to take with me. And they went through my britches and my socks and took away my $20. And they put me on a plane in Oklahoma City on June the 5th, 1972. And they gave me $5 and they instructed the stewardess not to let me off the plane. And on that plane that day, I had two beers in one Manhattan, and I had no idea where I was going. I had no enthusiasm for living. I was indifferent. I was uncaring, and I was spiritually dead. And I got to Alina Lodge on June the 5th, 1972. I have some beautiful memories about Alina. It was, in retrospect, a wonderful experience. I started the men's liberation movement in Lena Lodge. It hadn't taken yet, but it, it was well on the way before I left. At that time, it was a four-week course in how to quit drinking, and I cheerfully signed up for four weeks. Ten weeks later, I was still there. <laughs> Still confused and still hopeless and still helpless and knowing full well that I had alcoholism and by this time knowing that I couldn't drink and knowing that I couldn't keep from it and full of that sense of impending doom. And it was about this time of year, sometime in the first week of August, in 1972, that something happened to me at Alina. And I remember some things during that period with clarity. One of the things that they did at Alina Lodge when they, the tape machine broke or the lecturer got drunk or didn't show up or something was show us the Jelmick chart. And one of these little ladies, and there were a bunch of little ladies up there, came waddling in, they all waddled, and hung that chart up on the wall. And I can remember that like it was, like it was this evening. I saw them bring the chart in and I thought, Jesus, if they show me that again, I'll die. I've seen it a dozen times. And the Jolink chart, if you haven't seen it or are familiar with it, is a pictorial description of disease alcoholism. It's a picture of the things that happen to people as they, they experience the progressive nature of this horrible disease that we suffer from. A picture of little men going through the stages and disease that I had gone through. And I lit a cigarette and you weren't supposed to do that. And I remember them looking up and seeing that chart. And it was like a, I'd seen it for the first time. And, and suddenly it became as if I were alone in that room. And I saw that chart and I thought, my God, I've got a disease. Alcoholism is a disease. And I was overcome. I looked at that chart and it was just me and this, this, this thing in the room, this chart. And I could hear the title of the second chapter of the big book over and over and over. 
There is a solution, there is a solution, there is a solution, there is a solution. These words rang over my ears like the rumbling of a train. And I saw this chart, I had a disease and there was a solution. And I could see almost superimposed upon that chart what John just read from the big book a few minutes ago. The chapter of the agnostic, my description of the alcoholic and our personal adventures before and after make clear three pertinent ideas that we are alcoholic and can't manage our lives, that no human power could control our alcoholism and that God could and would if he were sought. There is a solution, there is a solution, and these are the instructions for recovery. So I went back to my room, and I got out my big book, and I started reading there where John quits. You know, the very next sentence says, being convinced we are at step three. This is what it's all about, and this is how you do it. So I started on page 60, and I started reading that big book with a new technique, reading to see what it said and not caring too much what it meant, looking for the instructions to sobriety that I had come to believe were my only chance. And in those next three pages I read about me, over and over and over again that I had to quit playing God. It doesn't work. But I had to find a new employer. Then I came to page 63 in the big book. And I read there what has become to be the most important words in the English language to me. On page 63 it says, we found it very desirable to take this important step with another person. I'm talking about the third step. You see, I'd come to believe I couldn't get well. But that day in that room with that chart, I thought I might get well. There was a solution that could work in me. And from that moment on, I believe that recovery was possible. Not very probable, but it was possible. And if these men who had outlined this course to follow, who had charted this pathway to sobriety, found it desirable to take the third step with another person, then for me it was absolutely mandatory. So I read it and I reread it. And I looked around to Lena and I found a little priest up there who was also a recovering alcoholic. And I showed him this part of the big book, and I asked him if he would do that with me, and he said, certainly. So it really came to happen that it was 11 weeks ago, 11 years ago, from next Monday, underneath a pine tree on a hillside in the Pocono Mountains, with a priest named Thomas J. Cochran, on August the 8th, 1972, at about 3.30 in the afternoon, I turned my will and my life over the care of God as I understood him. And you see, all I understood about God then and about all I understand about God today is that God either is or he is not. And at that point in time, I'd lost the privilege of choice because I knew if God wasn't, I would die. And if he was, I might live. So I turned my will and my life over to the care of a God that might be in the presence of a priest named Thomas J. Cochran at 3.30 in the afternoon on August the 8th, 1972. That has become a more significant day and time and moment in my life than any other. It's far more significant than my sobriety date. It's certainly more significant than my birthday. I had sort of thought that the clouds might part and there would be a big looming voice saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. <laughs> but nothing happened. Nothing at all happened. And I, and I went back down to my room, full of despair and fear. But I got out the big book and opposite that paragraph on page 63 I wrote on August the 8th, 1972 with TJC. So it was important to me. The next morning, 
August the 9th, 1972. And this is the way it was, because if it weren't, I, I wouldn't say it, because I'd be deceiving myself. I woke up that morning, and that feeling of impending doom and impending disaster was gone. That feeling of uncertainty and utter terror about the next moment had disappeared. And I've been free of that feeling of doom since then. And in this place was and has remained a little sensation, a little awareness that it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay. You see, I hear people talking about the third step, and they talk about taking it every day. And that interests me, but I want to know who do you take it with each day? With whom do you take it? The third step to me has come to be a permanent, irrevocable covenant with God as I understand Him. That I will accept whatever care is necessary to keep me walking in this spiritual path. It's sort of like the parable of the wayfarer that was walking through the hills and came across the shepherd with a little lamb in his arms, feeding him. The wayfarer said, oh, was the little lamb sick? And he said, no, so this little fellow is self-willed. And It's sort of like the parable of the wayfarer that was walking through the hills and came across the shepherd with a little lamb in his arms, feeding him. Wayfarer said, oh, is the little lamb sick? And he said, no, so this little fellow is self-willed and he won't obey and he won't stay with the flock and he won't listen to me or the dogs and I'm afraid he's going to get killed or get eaten by the wolves. And the wayfarer said, oh, did he hurt himself? And the shepherd said, no, I broke his leg. And you see, this might well be what the third step's all about. It's only during those times when I am lost, confused, and full of self-will that I I really must have the care of God. At those moments, I'm, I'm certain I'll get it. And it might be that kind of care that's brought about by pain. I kept on reading the big book, and on the next page it says that this decision, though a vital and crucial one, is of little lasting value unless at once followed by a look at ourselves. So I did what the big book said, and I wrote an inventory, and I limited this inventory to the people, places, and institutions that I was mad at, that I was afraid of. That's really all the big book says to write down, you see, except then you're supposed to make some kind of liturgy about your sex problems, and I, I, I sort of fantasized that I was a sex maniac at some time in my life, but one of my wives, and there have been many, said that if I were, that I'd, I'd certainly change the silk purse into a size there, but alcoholism solved all my sex problems, every name one of them, so I didn't have to include that in my inventory. I started the inventory, and Mid-August 1972, and I finished it the next day. And then so I didn't have anything else to do. I just kept adding to it every night. I continued to add to my personal inventory. And I continued to take personal inventory from that day to this. And there has been a smoothness running from the fourth to the tenth step in my recovery program as I see it. And things went on about the way they were in had been to Lena. I wasn't sure anybody knew I was there. Uh, once in a while I thought she saw me. And I'd wave at her. 2nd of August, Mr. Lady came up to me and said, I, I've done all I can for you. And I'm going to send you back home, but I fear for your sobriety. And I want you to go to a meeting tonight, and a meeting every night until you get relocated. That kind of incensed me. You see, I, I am a doctor, and I knew that alcoholism was a disease, and I knew the solution, I knew the treatment, and why in the hell anybody should be concerned about me, I didn't understand that at all. Anyhow, they put me on an airplane, and I flew back to Oklahoma City. And that night, I, I lived the greatest 
most terror-stricken evening of my existence. You see, I'd been told I had to go to a meeting that night, and a meeting every night. And I knew alcoholism was a disease, and I knew what I had to do to stay sober. And I was chewing on that all the way to Oklahoma City. And the plane lit, and I looked at my watch, and it was 9.10. You see, I know I had to go to a meeting that night, but the meeting was over. And I couldn't attend a meeting which was absolutely essential for my recovery. And I knew what the big book meant when it said that self-knowledge avails us nothing. That lack of power was my dilemma. I knew what I must do, but I couldn't do it. And that night I knew I was going to get drunk. I didn't doubt it for a moment. And I told my mother, I won't make it tonight. So we literally locked all the perfume and she had since been brave enough to buy some more lemon extract and vanilla, vanilla extract. We locked that up in the trunk of her car. And I paced the floor that night just waiting to break out drunk. But I didn't get drunk. And I didn't take pills. And since then, I have not concerned myself with my drinking of alcohol. That is your problem. Because that night I realized what it meant to be powerless over alcohol. To absolutely have no power, no earthly power, over taking another drink. Well, I wasn't exactly the most sought-after pathologist in Oklahoma, so I didn't have a hell of a lot to do. People were very casual about reaccepting me back in the medical profession in the, in the West. So the next three months, I just kind of fiddled around and went to A meetings and bothered my sponsor. And I'd been doing this with regularity after about the first three or four weeks. And so one day he says, why in the hell don't you take the fifth step? So I said, okay, and he made me an appointment this time with an Episcopalian preacher. You know, I did something funny that day. I had an appointment with this man at about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So I went back in my little room my mama's house that morning, and I got out my inventory. And I read it out loud, and I admitted all these things that I was and wasn't to God. Then I walked around and smoked a cigarette, drank a cup of coffee, and I sat back down, and I read it out loud again. And I admitted all these things that I was and wasn't to myself. And then I went to this very, very fine man, and I admitted these things about me to another human being. And he's a very gentle person and a very understanding person. And I was so full of humility that I couldn't wait to get to a meeting that night to tell everybody what I'd done. So I began to deviate from the instructions. You know, the big book says that after the fifth step, we should get alone by ourselves for an hour and open this book up to these pages. And read over these first five propositions to make certain we'd let nothing out. And if we found that we'd completed them to our satisfaction at that moment, that we should turn ourselves to the sixth and seventh step and direct our attention there. And I didn't do that. So the sixth and seventh step became the most difficult part of my recovery program. The most difficult stage in my development was step six and seven. I had me a list of defects of character, those things about me I didn't like, my arrogance, my vanity, my hate, anger, and fear. And periodically I used to flop down on my knees till I got calluses and ask God to take them away. I'd get down on my knees mad and I'd get up madder because I was still angry. And the seventh step kept not working and not working and not working. And I'd go to six and seven step meetings and I'd be assured it's not going to work for a while and I'd try so hard. This went on to about April 1973. And that time I decided to write the fourth step again. 
so I can take the fifth step, so I can get alone by myself for an hour and prepare myself to take the sixth and seventh step, but my inventory wouldn't write. All that garbage was non-existent. So I didn't have anything else to do one day, and I got out the dictionary to see what the difference between a shortcoming and a defect was. I looked the word shortcoming up in the dictionary. The dictionary said a shortcoming's a defect. So I looked the word defect up in the dictionary. And this is something I think every serious student of his own recovery program should do. I really believe this. You see, I had a list of what I considered defects of character. Those things about me that I found obnoxious and those things that about me that had been pointed out to me were obnoxious. These things I was that made me unacceptable to myself, my friends, and my God. But my dictionary said, and every dictionary I've looked at since then says, that a defect is something lacking that is necessary for completeness. That a defect is a deficiency. And you know, I looked at my little list, and I wasn't deficient in any of those qualities. Those are my lawsuits. Those weren't my shortcomings. And I wondered if I was brave enough to look back at my inventory and look back at this list and to look through that, to look through what I was, to see what I lacked, what I needed, what made me so incomplete. And I needed it so badly that I was willing. And you know, it's one thing to be willing to be free of hate. But it's entirely different to be willing to love that object of hate. And I had to be willing. And I came up with a new list, don't you know? List of traits of character that I did not possess. Deficiencies of character that were outside my ability to experience. I came up with a new list of things, of deficiencies, of defects. The lack of understanding my fellow man. The lack of care for him, concern for him, and consideration. The inability to let my fellow love me. And certainly the total inability to love those I held most dear. So it was in April 1973 with a new list of defects, a list of deficiencies of character, that I did indeed get down on my, my knees and ask God to please remove these voids from me, those that I know about and those that I'm unaware of. And you know, then I knew what the big book means when it says you have completed step seven. Because I believe at that moment, that I became whole again. And then I could become those things that prior to that time I could not achieve or attain. Oh, I got up from that session exactly the same pitiful, obnoxious creature that entered it. But now I had the ability to grow. And I'd entered a spiritual kindergarten. And as I look back on my recovery life, I believe this was the beginning of spiritual change. I believe that in me, change to a more wholesome creature was only possible with the intervention of God. That I had to be made once more pleopotential. And from that moment on, I had the power to change though I wasn't aware of it. Like I say, I've been, I've been continuing this crazy four step. I've been doing the Ten steps since I finished my fourth step. And I had in my inventory a list of people I'd harmed, and I was willing to make amends to them, and I knew that just living sober wasn't amends enough, you know, I knew that. But there was very little challenge to drinking, and I kind of slacked off from an intense dedication to what I was supposed to do, and I had a wife and a, and a daughter and a son, and my daughter was... 15 when I got sober, 
And I knew I should sit down and make amends for the, my behavior in the past, but by this time, I've been restored to the earning capacity doctors so richly deserve, and so I was able to buy her things, creature comforts, and she was so proud of me. And I didn't see any need to make amends. And this is part of my story, my life. In 1976, I was at a AA convention in Shreveport, Louisiana. My, my, my daughter was going to school in St. Augustine, Florida. My wife called and said, can you please come home? We've got to go to Robin. She's sick. So I flew back to Pensacola and we drove to St. Augustine and the young lady had Gillian Beret's disease and she was getting a ascending paralysis that followed the flu. The time we got there had gotten up to the intercostals and very briefly had gotten up to the lower spinal cord and was approaching the uh, central nervous system. I flew back to Pensacola to arrange coverage and as it always happened while I was gone they had to do a tracheotomy to put her on a life support system because she'd become paralyzed, couldn't breathe. When I got back to St. Augustine paralysis was complete. She was on a breathing apparatus and I was so afraid and I didn't understand. But I went into the family room, you know, and I sat there and I, and I suddenly became aware that Robin would be okay, Robin would be taken care of, that all we could do was support her. And my fear went away. And as Gillian Beret's disease will do, it started to recede. And after about 15 days, she could blink her eyes. And so I flew back to Pensacola to, to arrange air ambulance service to bring her home and let her recover. And I got back on November the 15th and early in the morning on November the 16th, my wife called and said, Robin just died. The tracheotomy had perforated her trachea and she had a fistula into the carotid artery. And she had exsanguinated, and I didn't understand. And Alcoholics Anonymous came and took me to my daughter. Other members of Alcoholics Anonymous came and stayed with my son. And I went back to St. Augustine and brought my child and my wife back. I had always thought that funerals were barbaric, primitive. And that expressions of sorrow were infringements upon the rights of the person who had suffered the loss. But the next morning I went to the funeral home alone. For all the beautiful, beautiful flowers and, and, the, and the expression of the essence of care was there with my child. And I went up to this little narrow house that she was living in and she had some flowers in her hand. And just she and I were there at first, I thought. And I took a hold of this child's hand and, and I was beginning to think, my God, how did this happen to me, to me, to me? And I was filled with a, a sense of peace and calm. And I was told, but man, you've been sober four and a half years. Son, you've been sober four and a half years. Aren't you lucky? Aren't you lucky? And at that moment of my greatest pain, greatest sadness, greatest sorrow, I was filled with a sense of gratitude and joy I have never known before or since. I've been sober four and a half years. How lucky can a man be? Boy, I learned so much that day, and this is the beginning, I think, of my awareness of the change in life that comes about as we try to walk this path. I was aware of gratitude, and I knew what the big book means when it says that God does for us what we could not do for ourselves because 
At that moment, I full well knew that Alcoholics Anonymous had taken from God as they individually and collectively understood the most beautiful gift I was ever allowed to give my daughter and handed it to me that I could give it to her, Grosselet, a sober daddy. And I know I couldn't do this because I tried so hard and all my friends had tried and my family had tried and it had been totally unsuccessful. Though the gentleness I to this day do not understand in a method I cannot comprehend, Alcoholics Anonymous was able to be a channel from the God that now is to my daughter. And he was indeed able to do for me what I couldn't do for myself and I it was an awesome experience. We went to the graveside that afternoon, and the family sat down, and our friends and our spiritual support gathered around us, and as the preacher started talking, I could hear, hear the people around me whispering and drawing closer and drawing closer, and after the service was over, they came up to me and said, did you see it? Did you see it? And I said, did I see what? Why? the beautiful yellow butterfly that came to the casket when the preacher started talking and visited every flower and then left just as he finished. And no, I didn't see it. But you see, the butterflies is is not a miracle. There have been butterflies in my life before and since. The miracle, the miracle is that I understood and I believed and I accepted it. And I was unafraid. I picked the preacher up. We flew him in from Oklahoma. He was my daughter's surrogate father during some of my worst drinking days. And we asked him to come out, to come to Florida to experience this with us. And I picked him up at the airport that morning and brought him to my house. And this is the way it went. And I wouldn't tell you this if it weren't so because I'd be deceiving myself. And we walked into the foyer of my house, just the preacher and I. And our friends and visitors were back in the back part of the home. And as we walked in, he looked at me and he said, My God, my God, my God, where did it come from? I've been searching for this all of my life. And I took him back and showed him where it came from, you see. And I understood then that spiritual strength is not something I have. That spiritual strength is something that exists apart from me. But that I found the source of that power. And that my days of greatest need, I need not be strong myself. I just turn to you. And spiritual strength is something we give, not something we have. And something we receive when we most need it. The preacher called me up a couple of days later. He said the damnedest thing happened to me on the way back to Ardmore. So we changed planes in, in New Orleans and sat down, and a fellow sat down next to me, and he looked at me, and he said, Mister, I'm a hopeless, helpless drunk, and there ain't nothing to be done for me. And the preacher said, I spent the time from New Orleans to Dallas telling that man what could be done for him. Those things I've learned in your home, in your time of sorrow. Preacher said that when he got to Dallas, he was called to the Delta baggage claim area, and he was met by two young men and said, we don't know what you said to our father, but he's got a smile on his face and a gleam in his eye that we haven't seen for 20 years, and you know he's going to be okay. It's not a miracle that my daughter could reach from wherever she was into this man's life. You see, that's not miraculous. The miracle is that I've never doubted this man's recovery. I know he is meaningfully sober today. And this certainty I have about that is indeed miraculous. It's not a miracle that I was reborn. The miracle is that I'm not afraid to live. I'm not afraid to look and to feel and to experience. So many things have happened to me in recovery. 
so many beautiful things, so many sad things. All of the important things in life have occurred to me since June the 5th, 1972. My wife of many, many years. And I found that our marriage didn't stand recovery. That we had fought a good battle and won. And that's all there was to it. And like Conway, I've been blessed with, with new happiness. My wife for 20 years is getting married Saturday. And it's a pleasure to know she'll be well and will be recovered from the terrible catastrophic years we had together. The important things have occurred since then. The most important thing I ever learned was that alcoholism was a disease and there was a solution. The most important thing I ever did, I did it 11 years ago, 11 years from Monday, on August the 8th, 1972, when I turned my will and my life over the care of God as I understood it. The most important document I ever wrote was the fourth step. The most important conversation I ever had, I had with that, that Episcopalian priest when I took the fifth step. The most important change that ever came about in my life was when I took the seventh step. And I was made into a creature that was capable, capable, if he would but work, of spiritual growth. The most important moments of my days today is the evening when I continue to take personal inventory and the morning when I get up and start the day off as I'm told to start it off on page 86 of the big book. Somebody said, what's the most important thing that ever happened to you? There's no doubt about that. You see, the most important thing that's ever happened to me is that I have had a deep and effective, meaningful, spiritual awakening. As a result of these steps, these steps, and you see, that's the message we have to carry. My message is not that I drink canned heat, vitalis, and fruit and coke. Not that I took every drug I could take. Not that I went to Skid Row, not that I, I was confused and addled. But the message that I have to carry is that I've had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. That has given meaning, given meaning to things in my life that otherwise I wouldn't have been aware of. That's made my life overall a, an experience of joy and happiness and pleasure filled with gratitude and a sense of awe. You know, I told you that in 1970 we adopted a little fellow named Bullet. About six years ago, this little fellow's favorite saying was, Ain't you glad? Ain't you glad? Mama's mad. Ain't you glad? Tires flat. Ain't you glad? I came home from work one night. And he came running out of the house to see me, and I threw him up in the air, and I grabbed him around the waist, and I looked down through those beautiful, beautiful eyes into the depths of his soul, and I said, what's your name, fella? He said, my name's Bullet, ain't you glad? Ain't you glad? You know, I cried that day because I was so glad. So glad for my alcoholism because it led me to him. I'm so grateful that I'm an alcoholic. And I've got things around me I can touch that makes that gratitude living, you see. His name's Bullet, and I'm so glad. I'm grateful for your alcoholism. So terribly grateful. Because if you and people just like you we're alcoholics. 
I full well know what would have happened to me 11, 12 years ago, you see. Hell, if you all weren't alcoholics, I don't know what I'd be doing tonight. But more important than that, I don't know what would happen to me in that day that's yet to come when I'll have no mental defense against the first drink and I know it's coming. If I had to face that alone, I would be so afraid. But I know that because of your alcoholism, when that moment comes, there'll be a source of power next to me that I can reach out to touch. Or if I'm too weak to reach, a source of power that'll reach out and touch me. I'm a lucky man. And if there are people here, you know, who are somewhere near where I was 11 years ago, and you want health and happiness, and a lifestyle you can't even imagine. Then all you gotta do, you see, is pick up this little book and do what it says to do. But if you say, well I can't believe, I'd love to do what I can't believe, well I'll tell you someplace you can start, my friend. You can believe that I believe. And I'm not a fool. With all my heart and soul, I believe the alcoholic hadn't been born yet who cannot achieve a meaningful, productive, happy, contented life through the majesty of this spiritual discipline that we call the 12 steps. I believe that. I believe that. Bullet makes my alcoholism important. You people made my recovery important. When you made me aware that you had given me the most beautiful thing that I ever possessed. When you made it possible for me to give my daughter the thing she wanted most, a sober daddy. This makes my recovery the most significant thing in my life. And for that, Robin and I will be eternally grateful. Thank you so much for sharing with me, for listening, for being here. And thank you in for advance for taking care of my sobriety.